going to open up your copy of God's Word, and we are going to read Romans 10, verse 5 through 13 together. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And thus ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The title of the morning's message is Faith That Saves. Faith That Saves. Well, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints helps its adherents understand faith with these words. I quote, Like all blessings from God, Mormons say, faith is obtained and increased through individual obedience and righteous actions. If we desire to enrich our faith to the highest possible degree, we must keep the covenants that we have made. This is very similar to the Roman Catholic understanding of faith, which teaches according to the Council of Trent, faith cooperates with good works to increase our right standing or justification before God. And this is specifically taught in the Roman Catholic Church to show that justification or being right with God is not by faith alone. And perhaps more clearly in the current catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, we see these words, we can merit or earn for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life. Still others teach that faith is hoping in something that you really want to be true in order to make it true for you, even if it isn't actually true. This is how the secular world really thinks of all religions. They think that religion is just a way for you to put your faith or hope or trust in something that you really want to be true so that it can be your truth, even if it's not actually true. Some liberal churches teach that the Bible isn't factually true, but that we should have faith in the ideas or the myths of Jesus. For example, Horace Bushnell cautioned that the faithful reader of Scripture is not obliged to assume the truth of the gospel narratives. Divine excellence and beauty is pictured in the myths of the Bible. Like a great artist, the Bible gives an impression of truth, but not actual truth. Well, there's another idea of faith that we see in the world. Joel Osteen, along with other health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers, 
uh, goes a different direction for faith. For Joel, he says that faith is a great tool to get you what you think will be good for you. I'll quote him from his book, Your Best Life Now. If you don't think you can have something good, then you never will have something good. The barrier is in your mind. You must rid yourself of the small-minded thinking and start expecting or having faith that God will bless you. You must conceive it in your heart before you can receive it. Look, my, my point in reading all these quotations of wrong thinking about faith is to help you understand that many who very broadly wear the label Christian clearly do not understand the biblical notion of faith. And knowing what it means to believe or to to have faith is perhaps the most pressing question that we need to answer in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. Right, Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you are saved through faith. Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, amen, justified is being declared right before God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access, that is access to God, by faith into this grace, this gift that we don't deserve, in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How do we get access to God? How do we have peace with God? Again and again, it's through faith. And then last week's text, go back to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Paul's so clear. For, for Christ is the end of the law. Instead, righteousness comes to everyone who believes. Faith alone in Christ alone is repeatedly our one response to the gospel that assures us of eternal life, that we are actually right before the only God. See, faith is not a tool to get you what you want as the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers preach. Faith is not rejecting the truth of the Bible and believing in a spiritual feeling like many liberal churches teach. And faith is not obtaining or earning or meriting salvation like the Roman Catholic Church and the Latter-day Saints clearly teach. Our catechism question and answer about saving faith reflects the historical Protestant and biblical understanding of faith. It says this, saving faith knows and affirms gospel truth revealed in God's word and trusts in the person and work of Christ resting on him alone for salvation. Listen, saving faith understands that you can't earn a right standing with God. You can't earn righteousness by the good that you do. Saving faith knows and trusts in the person and the work of Christ. And so as Paul continues to help us see how we are made right before God, in our text today, he turns to teach us about faith. 
He helps clarify what faith is not and what faith is. So this morning we'll see four descriptions of a faith that saves. Four descriptions of a faith that saves. These are tests to apply to your understanding of faith to make sure you're not sliding into error or, worse yet, don't actually have saving faith. Well, the first test or description of faith is actually a negative test. Now, when I wanted to help my toddlers expand their vocabulary when they were particularly young, I'd often play games with them. For example, when they were learning how to determine which animal was which, I'd point to the dog and I'd say, is this a fish? And they'd go, no. And I'd say, is this a cat? And they'd laugh, no, that's not a cat, daddy. And then I'd say, is this an elephant? they go, no, that's not an elephant, daddy. And I'd say, well, what is it? And they'd say, it's a dog. And as we get older, you need to understand that the same tools that we use when we are little to understand vocabulary is used to help us understand what is truth. You see, one of the easiest ways to come up with definitions is to describe what something is not. And so it is with complex theological truths as well. Sometimes it's still helpful for us in order to understand what faith is to contrast it with what faith is not. So while we began with all those wrong definitions, and we actually see Paul addressing another concept of what faith is not, right in the beginning of verse 5. And so first we see, faith in Christ is not based on national obedience. Faith in Christ is not based on national obedience. Now to understand this point, you're like, say, how does that work? we have to understand the context of Romans 10, verse 5. Remember, Paul is writing the book of Romans here to a growing, predominantly Gentile church, and the Jewish Christians are starting to feel out of place in this church. Culturally, the Jews and the Gentiles are different. They, they generally eat different food. They generally dress a little bit differently. They generally celebrate different holidays, and, and some of the Jewish Christian customs really are hold-ons or cling-ons from Judaism. And in fact, some of those Jewish customs are proving to be just as problematic as the pagan hangovers in Gentile families, perhaps even more so, since Christianity is really a culmination of Judaism, since Jesus is the prophesied Jewish Messiah, and since the Old Testament is and remains the inspired word of God and profitable for us. You see, there was confusion over how much of the Old Testament commandments and laws were applied to the Christians today and what those roles of the commandments were in our life. And there was even confusion over how one can become right with God. You see, in the Old Testament, the law was designed in part to help set Israel apart from other nations to give them different customs and diets and different clothing. But it was also designed to help them see their great need for a Savior because they were unable to keep the law of God perfectly. They were to realize they could never measure up to God's standard of perfection. They could never earn God's forgiveness, and they could never earn salvation. And when Christ came, he literally brought an end or a culmination to the law. 
That's why Romans 10, 4 says it so clearly. Look back up there. For Christ is the end of the law. And by that we mean he's the end of trying to be right with God through the law. Christ is the goal of the law. The one the law was designed to point to. For now, righteousness comes to everyone who believes. And so when you're culture and customs are rooted in the Old Testament law and when Pharisees hold most of the religious power, it's no wonder that many Jews struggled with this reality. It's no wonder that many Jews still thought that they as a people had to keep the law perfectly in order to please God. And so many extra rules and regulations were added to the mundane activities of every day to help Jews think they were able to please God. These are extra rules and activities that are not even found in the scriptures. Like last week, we talked about how you could learn to clip your fingernails in a certain way and in a certain order, one finger, one hand on one day and another hand on another day, and you had to bury them or burn the fingernail clippings so you didn't harm pregnant ladies. I mean, that's literally not found anywhere in scripture, but it was a big part of the Jewish traditions. And so you have Jews fastidiously keeping these commandments, thinking that they're pleasing God by doing things like clipping their nails. But there were so many other examples like, like learning how far you can walk on the Sabbath without breaking the Jewish custom and codes that they had come up with. And many other extra rules were designed so that the whole nation of Israel could get good at keeping some attainable goals so they could feel good about themselves and, and think that, you know, somehow I am honoring God by keeping these commandments that they could attain a level of goodness. Then they would somehow curry the Lord's blessing and avoid his curses. There were national hopes behind their rule keeping. They wanted God to bless the nation. And so you see religious leaders saying, well, we can't be perfect, but we sure can get a lot of people to clip their nails in the right order. So let's see how Paul develops this idea of the Jews wanting to earn and kind of merit this national blessing. Verse 5. He says, For Moses writes, and this is how he's introducing a quote from Moses. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. And he picks up this theme from earlier that the Jews had thought that they could be right with God as a people and receive God's blessing because they could keep some sort of law and some sort of extra things that they came up with. And then he quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5, to make his point. So, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, now there, there's one key word at the end of that verse that is very important to unlocking the truth here. It's that little word, live what does it mean that the Jews thought that by keeping the commandments, they would be able to live by those commandments? Is this as in eternal life? Could they gain and merit eternal life? Did God want them to realize that they couldn't merit eternal life by trying really hard? Is that the point of Leviticus 18? Or is, or is this live by these commandments speaking of something different? Well, to help us understand what it means, let's go back to Leviticus Chapter 18. Go ahead and turn there. Leviticus 18. In this chapter, God is teaching Israel 
how, as a nation, they are to be set apart or different than the Egyptians or different than the Canaanites. They are to pursue God's law because they actually already belong to God. God has done a work in their midst. And so because God first loved them, they are to love one another and love him. So their motivation for right living in Leviticus 18 is an already established right relationship. And so we see these words, 18 verse 1. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh, your God. They are literally God's people. They are the ones whom God has redeemed out of Egypt, right? And so then verse four, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh, your God. He reiterates again, I am your God. I'm the one who redeemed you. I'm the one who's revealed myself to you. So therefore, because I have loved you, you are to love me and you love me by keeping your command, my commandments. And so he continues. He says, verse three, right? You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. No, no, you should follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh, your God. And then the verse that Paul quotes in verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. For I am Yahweh, your God. Now, is this living by these statutes? Is this an eternal life here? I, I don't think so. I think if you are looking at this in the context, and we'll look at some verses later on, you see the life here that he's talking about is, is a blessed life in the land. We know that because of the contrast of the nations in verse 3. Like, what happened to the Egyptians and the Canaanites? God punished them because they were not following and doing what God wanted them to do. And so he, he actually brought the Canaanites out of the land. And so therefore, if you don't want to be like the Canaanites and get punished and stay in your land, then you should obey my commands. He says basically the same thing, verse 24. Leviticus 18.24, he says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules. And jump down to verse 28. Lest the land vomit you out when, it make it, when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. See the context here, right? God is the king maker. He ultimately is the builder and destroyer of nations. And God wanted his people to realize that if they ignored his laws, if they continued to rebel against him, they also would be cast out of the land. But if they followed his law, then, then the nation would live, or in other words, be blessed in the land that God had given them. The Old Testament law had both kind of a personal implication that you should do what is right and a national implication. If the nation does right, they will remain in the land. They will live, that's what the word live there is saying, in the land. All right, so with that understanding, go back to Romans chapter 10. Paul introduces the idea of God's national blessings coming by law keeping as a contrast with the new way that Christians are to live by faith. He essentially says it used to be obedience to God's law brought about national blessings for the Jews. 
But that's not the goal of Christianity. So he makes a contrast. Look at verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. So, so Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But contrast here. The righteousness that is based on faith says, and he goes on to talk about that righteousness. So, so the faith that saves is not based on national obedience that he talks about in verse 5. Our goal as Christians is not nation building. There is a future reign of Jesus promised in Israel, but the, the way of righteousness, of being right with God, no longer has national implications like it did under the law. So what practically does that mean for us? Look, I think for starters, we must not fool ourselves into thinking that our highest calling is to enact some sort of national moral reform. There have been many moral blights in the fabric of our nation from its inception. And without a doubt, today, there are ever-increasing numbers of people who want to call evil good and good evil. But that does not mean that the church's goal is to enact some sort of national obedience. Christian politicians should work for good, godly, moral laws. Christians should want the end of abortion. Christians should want laws that privilege getting and staying married. But the church's goal is not to legislate a national turning in order to somehow bless our land. The church's goal is to call for faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not help an unbelieving world better follow Christ's morality while rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Our goal is to be a minority community set apart to worship God and to evangelize those who do not know him. To be the body of Christ is calling for faith in the gospel of Christ, not to call for national obedience as if that is our highest and most pressing need. So as we discern the traits of saving faith in our text, Paul shows us it is no longer connected to national obedience. We are a holy nation unto the Lord, a royal priesthood. Well, second description of faith that saves, faith in Christ is always accessible. Faith in Christ is always accessible. No longer is faithful worship of the one true God intimately connected with the nation of Israel. No longer does trusting God include adopting the full national and religious practices of the Jews. It certainly does not mean that you have to go move to Israel to be a Christian. It's essentially what it meant to be a Jewish convert. You had to go, if you really wanted to convert, be in Israel. Christianity is intrinsically international. And thus, faith in Christ is always accessible. And to make this point, Paul quotes another Old Testament passage indicating that God is always near to his people. That God's word is not hidden or, or distant, but is always near and accessible. Look at verse 6, right? Romans 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, remember, this is a contrast from the previous verse, the, the new way of being right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that is based on faith says, what does it say? Verse 6 continues. 
Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into uh, the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, I admit, when I first read this, I was like, man, what's he talking about there, right? Like, whoever thinks they're going to go up to heaven or come down to the abyss to, to get Christ there. But again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30, and he applies it to the nearness of Christ. Uh, listen to what Deuteronomy 30 is actually saying. Deuteronomy 30 is saying the word of God is actually near to us. And Paul's going to say the same thing is true about Jesus. So just listen as I read this text that Paul quotes. I think it becomes clear when you read the whole text. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is, uh, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word of God is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Right? What's the point of those verses? It's very clear. In Deuteronomy, the, the principle is God reveals himself. He is not expecting some deep dive into secret wisdom in order to discover who he is and how he wants you to live. He says, verse 14, so clear. The word is very near to you. It's accessible. You can get it. And so it is with Jesus. Paul makes this parallel point here. He's not hiding. Jesus is not behind some shroud of biblical mythology or patriarchal privilege that you have to deconstruct here. No one needs to go find him in heaven. He came to earth for us. You don't need to go into the depths of the earth or the depths of the sea to find Jesus. He's here for us. Being right with God through faith in Christ is near to everybody because Jesus is always accessible. So, so with that in mind, look at verses 6 through 8 again. See, the righteousness or being right with God based on faith, it, it says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ out, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth. And in your heart, that's the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is clear. Faith in Jesus is near. It's accessible. No one has to go up to heaven to find it. No one has to sink down into the depths and find some secret hidden Bible code to interpret what is true. No, no. God has clearly revealed his gospel in Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel that the apostles have clearly proclaimed to the world, and that is clearly preserved to us in the written word of God. So faith in Jesus Christ is always accessible. You know, sometimes it's funny to see uh, little kids attempt adult activities. Recently, I saw an almost two-year-old eye down our eight-foot-tall basketball hoop and immediately take his ball, go up to that hoop, and try and throw it in course it didn't come close but you know it's like me trying to throw in a, a ball to a 24 25 foot hoop right and that'd be pretty tough it wasn't much long after that that I saw another little one who was just starting to stand attempt to walk up a step but when you see little kids walk up a step you realize that their hip is about the size of the step right 
Now imagine you doing that for a second, right? How many of you could be like, you know, navigating something like that, right? That's pretty tough. We understand. And so, of course, they need help. But as the children grow, that, that step, that, that basket will become ever more accessible. I mean, so it is with faith. Perhaps the gospel, the first time you hear it, seems so foreign, so, so odd. But as God grows us, perhaps even in the course of one conversation, the gospel is really accessible for all. There are no insurmountable barriers to faith, no giant hoops that you have to jump through or impossible mountains to climb. The gospel is designed by God to be clear, to be understandable, to be translated into all languages. And God designed the gospel to infiltrate all cultures. That's why Christians are all about Bible translation. We are all about taking the gospel message into hostile cultures, cultures that we think would be against Christianity. You see, there are no unreached, unreachable people groups, and God's grace can break through any rock-hard heart. Think about what comfort that is. Think about that family member that you know that is particularly hardened to the gospel, that really really does not like you talking about Jesus. God's gospel is accessible even to them. So pray for the lost. Share the gospel and call for faith in Christ. For a settled trust that Christ alone declares us right before the only holy God, that faith, that trust in Christ is accessible. Faith in the gospel is always accessible. Third description of faith that saves, number three, faith in Christ is all-encompassing. Faith in Christ is all-encompassing. When you get into the highest level of sports, they sometimes create shirts for aspiring athletes to wear, you know, something that says something like, eat, drink, sleep, football, or, you know, whatever sport you really like, right? Right? The implication is that young person's life is fully committed to that sport or to that activity. And sports are just one of many activities or things in life that can quickly become all-consuming, that can dominate our thinking, our time, our resources. But God shows us that the faith in Christ alone for salvation, when it is a genuine faith, ought to be all-encompassing. We're going to pick up the text again in verse 8. And as we read Romans 10, verse 8, 9, and 10, I want you to try and find the same pair of words that's repeated in each of these next three verses. All right, so as we're reading, look down at the text. Find the same three uh, pair of words that's repeated three times. Verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All right, so, so what's the repeated two words, right? Mouth and heart. Mouth and heart. 
Three times those two words are repeated, mouth and heart. There's other repeated words too, but, but that pair of words is repeated three times. That's really, really important to understand saving faith. Because the, the heart is the volitional seat of man. It really gets to the deepest desires that we have. It gets to our thinking. It gets to our motivations. And the mouth, well, the mouth is the public vehicle for what's in the heart. The mouth is what reveals what our heart's desires are. And so all of our deepest desires should be obvious to the watching world through our mouth. See, true faith in Christ is never private faith in Christ. A Christian's faith should be, should be obvious to everyone, touching on all points of the desires of your heart. There, there is no moment of life in which Jesus isn't king. For example, you should ask yourself as you go into work this week, how can I honor Christ at my job today? You should ask yourself as you're driving to the grocery store, how can I honor Christ as I drive my car? How can I honor Christ as I interact with those in the grocery store? You see, genuine saving faith crops up in all of life in every situation, because it has to do with a pervasive heart desire. And the regular speech that comes out of our mouth should reflect that heart's desire. But what do these verses teach us about the content of our faith? What are we confessing with our mouth in verse nine? Well, first of all, look at verse nine. What are we confessing? Jesus is Lord, right? See that? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this gets to the content of our faith. Now, this confession isn't just uttering the words, Jesus is Lord, as if there's some magical incantation that will get you to heaven. That's why I'm not really a fan of the sinner's prayer model of evangelism of getting someone to repeat a prayer word for word after you, right? The reason why that is not the greatest is because it kind of leads someone to believe that if they just say these words right after you, that they somehow will then be saved. But there's no guarantee that the words that they're repeating, which are your words, are reflecting the genuine heart faith that they're supposed to have. So, so much better to, you know, lead them in a, by, by praying yourself and say, you know what, out of your heart, pray something similar. Uh, confess your sins to the Lord. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But what are we saying when we say that Jesus is Lord? It's not some sort of magical incantation. We don't just say the words and we're saved. What are we saying that Jesus is Lord? Well, really, we're confessing that we believe in our hearts that King Jesus is Lord of our life, the highest Lord in all that you do, say, and think. To say he is Lord is to say that he has authority over your life. He's the almighty king worthy of all of our praise. Now, interestingly enough, there's actually a controversy about this in some Christian circles. Uh, They called it the lordship controversy. And some like to teach that in the beginning of your Christian walk, 
You just need to know Jesus as Savior. And then later, when and if you really get serious about your faith, you can make Jesus your Lord. Right? There's kind of two stages to our salvation. It's this idea that you can appreciate Jesus as Savior without bowing your knee to him as Lord. You can be a Christian by repeating the simple prayer without your faith affecting anything else in your life until you make him your Lord. But there's no making Christ Lord. It's not like you can do anything or say anything that makes him Lord. Is not Christ already Lord overall? Whether you believe he is or not? Further, part of saving faith, part of what you confess with your mouth is very clear here, right? Jesus is what? Lord. He's God over all. He is king of kings. And you confess the king Jesus requires all of who you are to believe in him, to follow him, and to obey him. Further, if this is meant to be a two-phase process of kind of first believing that Jesus is Savior and then submitting to him as Lord, you'd think that the book of Acts would reflect this teaching as it chronicles how the early church started and evangelized the lost. But in the book of Acts, only two times is Jesus called Savior. And 92 times Jesus is called Lord. That's because central to saving faith is to understand that you are to serve Christ as Lord. That faith then permeates all of life as you submit everything that you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what else is the content of our all-encompassing faith according to verse 9? What else? Well, it's a resurrection, isn't it? Second half of the verse, he says, you are to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is, is essential because it proves that he is Lord and he is Savior. It proves that what he accomplished in his death is now effective and permanent, getting us reconciled with God. It proves that God accepted Christ's death as a substitute for our sins. It proves that Jesus is God and has the power over sin and death. It proves that his promise of a resurrected eternal life is real for us. He is our first fruits of this resurrected life. And in spite of all of the ridiculous claims that the tomb or, or some bones of Jesus have been found, we know where the bones of Jesus Christ reside, do we not? They're seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is in his eternal, resurrected body, interceding for his own. All-encompassing faith in the crucified and resurrected Son of God causes us to be justified or right with God or saved. See, look at how Paul continues his argument in verse 10, right? For the heart one believes and is what? Justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These are synonyms. To be justified, it means to be declared right before God. To be saved is to be forgiven and in a right standing with God. To be reconciled with God. And our greatest need is met on the cross of Christ. And the only response that saves is very simple. Believe. Trust. Follow. Jesus is Lord. 
to believe in Jesus as Lord is to trust that he alone brings you to a right standing before God. And that genuine trust in Christ, it means that you can't be silent about it. It's going to affect your heart. It's going to affect your mouth. Well, just yesterday, I watched uh, Pastor Matt do battle with some wasps. He was getting out of his van, and let me tell you a little bit of the story of what happened here. Unknown to him, he ran over a ground wasp hive with his car. And so he gets out of the driver's side door, opens up the sliding door to help his kids get out, and about as he's a to unbuckle the uh, uh, seatbelt of his child, I see him get stung, right? I'm about 50 yards away. I can't do anything, you know, so. But um, he gets stung in the leg, and you can tell he got stung right away because you know what, it, what you look like when you get stung, right? You know, do that sort of thing, and you start you know, dancing, and he was gyrating in a way that I had not seen Pastor Matt gyrate. And as he opened up the door to get these kids out, he, he's getting stung and he's flailing about. So, but, but then his mind goes to the kids, got to jump into action. So he springs up, goes through the you know, swarm of, of bees that are trying to get at him, closes the sliding door, slams it shut, closes the driving door, motions Molly to get into the driver's seat. And like a pregnant ninja, Molly slides over into the driver's seat. And Matt, swatting as he goes, tosses her the keys, and they move the car to get their kids out of harm's way. It was incredible. And as the day wore on, the story of the wasp got better and better and better. <laughs> and his chivalrous actions got more and more heroic. And you expected Dad to do just what Pastor Matt did. Why? Because he's responding to reality right in front of him. Beloved, how are you going to respond to the reality of King Jesus right in front of you? Will you turn from living for yourself as Lord and King and worship Christ as Lord and King? Or is it going to have little to no effect on your life? You believe in your heart and be willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of all? I hope you see that saving faith does not stay silent. It springs into action. It jumps up to follow Christ always and in all ways. There's one final description of a faith that saves. Faith in Christ is unifying. Number four, faith in Christ is unifying. When Paul circles back around to the argument he made in Romans 9, verse 33, namely, that even though Jesus had been a stumbling stone to the majority of Jews, for Gentiles, Jesus had reversed their shame. He's reversed the curse of God that they deserved. And Gentiles have now obtained God's righteousness because they've trusted in and believed in the same Messiah that so many Jews rejected. So Paul quotes Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 33. He said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And now he returns to the same verse in verse 11, the same scripture, for he says, verse 11 of chapter 10, 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's one big difference in these two quotations. Paul uses the word everyone the second time because he wants to make it very clear to us that without distinction, every single person who believes in Jesus Christ is right with God and will never be put to shame. That is, both Jew, Gentile, everybody. We know that's the case because look at verse 11 and 12 again. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah promised to Abraham that would bring about a blessing for the whole world. Remember, Gentile just simply means every other nation beside Israel. The word Gentile could also be translated nations. As far as salvation is concerned, the Jews do not have a claim on Jesus more than the rest of the world. He is equally Lord, Savior, and great high priest of everyone. I mean, listen just to the glorious blessings that are, our, that are ours because we have a great high priest in Christ, someone who brings us to God. Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the heavenly throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. There is no distinction. For anyone can worship God in spirit and truth now that Christ has opened up the way. You're in verse 12. Did you notice the final phrase of verse 12? What are the benefits of our faith? It bestows God's riches on all who call on him. God's riches then belong to us. Let that sink in for just a second. And Hebrews 4 that we just read reminds us of what we get when we have Christ, when we belong to Christ. We have access to God. I mean, think about that. Previously, there was not intimate access to God. You had to go through the priest. You had to offer an animal sacrifice first to be covered for your sins that week. But now we have intimate access to the throne room of heaven. We have a compassionate high priest. We are, have someone who is able to bring us directly to God. Why? Because our sins have totally been covered by Christ's work on the cross. And when Christ died, he didn't just die because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus died because he bore God's wrath reserved for me. And he washes us, declares us right, makes us white as snow so that we can bring everything directly to God. And we have a compassionate high priest because we have a priest who 
had the same experiences that we had, who had a shared experience with us. He came as man, humble servant that he was. He was tired. He was tempted, yet without sin. For as he took on flesh, he lived in our place. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He committed no sin, the thing that we could never do. And then he died in our place as a substitute for our sin. And then he rose from the dead as our forerunner, promising us who have faith in him that the same will be true for us. Listen, this glorious work of Christ gives us the full weight of God's riches. That's how verse 12 ends. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. So we're reminded that Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. We are now all one with Christ. To grasp this, go back to Romans chapter 6. He's been talking about this for quite some time. Romans 6, 4 through 7. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Very importantly, we see that a faith that saves will be a repentant faith, a faith that dies to self and lives for Christ. Because we have died to self, we are united with Christ in a death. And because Christ has raised from the dead, he promises to transform our lives to fight sin that does remain. See, a faith obviously results then in a transformed life. And as Paul continues in Romans, the riches of being one with Christ continue. Men and women from every nation can now belong directly with God's family. Go go over to Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are one with Christ. We are children of God, fellow heirs with Christ, possessors of God, the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that you have all of those spiritual benefits? Do, Do you act like you have all those spiritual benefits, then you can't help but tell the world. Remember, you to believe in your heart and what? Confess with your mouth. Right? Those right actions, the, the, the following Christ with our lives, that is simply a fruit of genuine faith. Genuine faith responds to Christ as Lord. And so back to Romans 10, verse 13. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Genuine faith results in salvation. 
genuine faith responds to Christ as Lord and is willing to forsake the sins of your culture, willing to forsake the sins of your own wicked desires, willing to forsake your own people, even sometimes family. Because if you are in Christ, you belong to a new family, a family where Jew and Gentile are in one body. This is why it can be discouraging to see mono-ethnic churches at times, churches with almost all white people or almost all black people or almost all Chinese people or Japanese people or any people. Unless a church holds services in a language other than English, Christ's church should be and is designed to be integrated. Christ's church should have some from every tongue and tribe that's found in your community. Because God saves some from all over the world. And we need to learn to be patient with each other, patient with different preferences, and careful not to elevate preferences to gospel truth. Why? Because faith in Christ is inherently unifying. It puts us all in the same family with the same eternal blessings. Let me tell you a story of selective hearing as we close. When our children were younger, we would do our own experiments. That sounds twisted as I say that, but um, you'll see. It's not that bad. We would see how well our children could hear by talking about different things at different times because sometimes it sure seemed like our children were hard of hearing. For example, when we told our kids that it was time to get ready for bed or time to clean up their toys, somehow they just didn't hear us, like they couldn't hear at all. And, and so we began to think, huh, how can we be sure that they can hear? So a minute later, in the same volume, well, really in a softer volume, my wife and I would start a conversation just between us about whether or not we should eat some dessert before they go to bed. And without fail, three drooling children would run into the kitchen It's because they heard the message and they knew they wanted what the message was talking about. Some of you want the benefits of salvation while you keep on playing with your toys. But God couldn't be clearer. Salvation is contingent on your response. A response that jumps up and comes into the room, as it were, trusting in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Look at verse nine, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God saved him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, beloved, times of ignorance, the Lord is overlooked. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear this gospel call and you long to cherish Christ above all, if you want to turn from living for self and aim to glorify God, then trust Christ today. As verse 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel message. We thank you for the clarity with which you speak and show us how it is that we are to respond to Christ, that we are to respond faithfully trusting you, 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who believes in our heart and who regularly confesses with our mouth. Help us to remember that you indeed are Lord of all. To recognize such. To act like we believe these things. Lord, give us strength to persevere. Lord, and if, if we belong to you, if we are your children, help us to remember that we are one with every other Christian because your Holy Spirit has done an incredible work in us because you saved us not on anything that we've done, not on the basis of deeds which we've done, but because your Spirit has regenerated our hearts. Lord, we praise you that we can believe because of what your powerful work has done in us. Help us to believe. Help us to turn and trust in you. Help us to reject false notions of faith. Help us not to equate faith with the health, wealth, prosperity gospel of just getting more and more of what we want. Help us not to equate faith with earning your favor. Help us not to equate faith as just a personal thing that between us and you. Help us not to assume that faith is to be worked out in calling for national obedience. Help us to call for national conversion. Help us to call for people to come know and know you as their Lord and Savior. May we confess with our mouth that you are Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.